everybody. This is Charles Hain for the No Film School podcast, the week of June 24th, 2021. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we are going to be talking about the British government clawing data away from the streamers. We are going to be talking about whether or not actors should be allowed to lie about their heights, which is a more complicated issue than you would think. Got a little bit of a tease in tech news. And then we have an Ask No Film School inspired by a previous Ask No Film School. So it's an Ask No Film School inception about what makes a good script. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our top story this week is the British government is going to make the streamers reveal so far just to the British government streaming data on how many people are watching their content. So a little bit of context on this story. First off, the streamers are notoriously very shy about releasing much data on not any data, but just much data on how many people are watching and how long. So, you know, Netflix will occasionally drop little bombs like Bird Box is our most watched ever, but then they won't give a tremendous amount of context on like how long people watched and all of those other things that are really relevant. All of the streamers are like this. They all consider it proprietary data. And coming from a world like YouTube, like if you've ever made a YouTube video, you're aware, like down to the minute, how long everybody watched it and how many people have watched it. And you check back an hour later and there's more hits. So like we're used to having a lot of data, but a lot of this data is considered very opaque up at the top level. And while I'm confident that when David Fincher does a movie with Netflix, he gets access to all the data. Not everybody does. I certainly know people who've done movies with big streamers and haven't gotten a lot of the backend data and it's been very nebulous. And, you know, some data comes out, but not the robust amount filmmakers are used to. And the BBC who, you know, the British government pays for a lot of content to be created in England. They have a very robust public broadcasting system with BBC and ITV and channel four and channel five. Like there's a lot of content Granada television that gets government money to make content in England. It's a much different model than our model. And a lot of that will then get co-produced with Netflix and released on Netflix. You know, like The Crown, which is treated as a Netflix show, is is a BBC Netflix co-production. Peaky Blinders, I think, is the same. And there's a bunch of others. And apparently, even though you would think, I mean, I personally kind of assumed that they would have been in that top tier where getting all the data we could possibly want space. But apparently the British government is like, we are not getting all of the data that we would like. Please give us all of the data. And so far they are saying, please, but they're making it very clear (laughs) that we are a government. It's the British Parliament's Digital Culture, Media, and Sports Committee. Which Oh, sport, sorry, because in England they just say sport. Digital Culture, Media, and Sport Committee. In America, that would be Sports Committee. Want the streamers to help track the reach of all of that content because that's part of their decision-making when they're producing this content is how far it's going, who's it's engaging with. No one wants to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a show no one watches. We can all be confident that everyone watches The Crown because everybody seems to watch The Crown. But short of that, they, they want more data. And I think the implication in this current conversation is they're saying, please, and soon they will they will go beyond please and say, if you don't give us the data, we will, we will see you in court, as the British government has the right to do. So 
you know, in general, the streamers think it's going to be bad for their business model to reveal too much data. I have very complicated feelings on this. I understand the urge to be like, let's just focus on the quality of the content and not focus so much on the box office. And I like, there's a, there's a pure art version of that that I love. Like Nancy Meyer's whole thing is like, when did we start reporting box office news data in the mainstream news? Like, can we just talk about like whether or not we like stuff and not whether or not it made money? And you know, I like, I, I like that pure vision of it. I am also not 100% sure why this, like if the movie industry has always survived with box office numbers, where on Monday morning, everybody knows how everything did. Why does the streaming industry require no box office numbers to survive? Because the argument the streamers are making is this is proprietary data and it'll hurt our business if it's public. But like the movie industry's data has all been public forever. Yeah, I guess my question is, why would it, how would it hurt? Like, what's the explanation or is there one that you've heard? I don't understand why it would hurt. I, I guess what I've always thought of is that the um, what I've always been aware of is that reporting these numbers helps to create a sense of demand or popularity or success. And so it's used from my perspective, it seems it's used for marketing. It's like the number one movie of the weekend, which then you often like look at it and think like, oh, well, you know, that doesn't tell me all that much about the movie, but you know, that's a way of saying it's a hit, you know, or go see it or everyone's seeing it. Like just it's, it's marketing. It's, the way it's always been done. What I question is how does it hurt to report it? I guess if the numbers are, if they report that like nobody's watching their original programming, then people, even less people will watch it. Is that what they're worried about? Like, what are they afraid of? I think there's a whole lot of factors here that are different for every company. So for instance, if you're Apple, you have all of the money on the earth. So you don't, you're in a different position than say Netflix. Netflix has a a tremendous amount of revenue, but Netflix also has a tremendous amount of debt and venture capital and all sorts of other tied up in their process. And the bet that Netflix has been making is that they're going to grow fast enough to be able to cover the, the VIG on that debt and make their investors and backers happy. So if you're Netflix, I can understand why Netflix is like, we don't publish data. I get that because Netflix is like, you know, they don't want to, I'm sure they're inv- their investors yeah. and they're, yeah. Now I'm sure their big investors get access to all of that data anyway, but there's a big different, but, <laughs> but there, you, you have to remember that investors are often willing to back things privately that publicly might look too risky. Right. So like, even if the investor has that data, once it comes out that like Netflix's viewership isn't as high as people assume, or one of the shows isn't a flop or whatever, that can affect public opinion. And those investors have their own shareholders and their own boards and their own. And so like it can make the investor feel pressured to pull something out or put more pressure. So like in Netflix's case, it makes total sense that they're like, no numbers. Or really what Netflix is saying is we don't want regular numbers. Because what the film industry has is regular numbers. Every Monday morning, everybody's used to pick apart what did what. We don't need more mm-hmm. because it got too depressing in the pandemic, but it used to be like part of Monday morning that we all checked the box office and it was in the normal news. And like, they talked about it on the nightly news and stuff. And Netflix doesn't want that. Netflix wants control over when their numbers come out, which like, I think that I understand why they want that. And so they'll release things like bird box did these numbers or they'll release things like this show did these numbers. But other than that, they don't want it to become a, an assumption 
They don't want YouTube. They don't want every show having numbers underneath it where there's, because there've been lawsuits in YouTube space when Google has like changed the metrics about how a number is counted. There were lawsuits and there were, and there's, there's an assumption in YouTube that you're going to have all this data and it's going to be public. And at one point YouTube had like a hiccup where your numbers would freeze and everybody got pissed and Netflix doesn't want that. And like, I get it. Apple is in a different boat because Apple doesn't really have backers in the same way. I mean, there are large stock, investors. The, you know, there's yeah. big there's stockholders. There's, there's big stockholders. Stock. Yeah. And if stockholders got really angry about Apple TV or Apple TV Plus or whatever the streaming, you know, if if the numbers were terrible and the and you know, and a big enough group of investors got pissed about it, they could try and shut it down. So I think it's I think it's a different thing. I think in general, I like what the US, the British government is doing here because I think as individual filmmakers, we would like access to more of that data. It's surprising to me that the British government isn't already able to get that data out of its streaming partners because you would think it would. Like you would assume that that data would be, av- like once you're big enough, that data has to be something that's available to you. And it's uh, frankly surprising that the government has to fight for it, but hopefully them fighting for it will change some policies so that others who are, you know, big enough, because everything in, in every negotiation, it's all about precedent, right? So if you're negotiating to get access to that data and nobody else has or ever has, their lawyers are going to fight tooth and nail against it because nobody else has ever gotten that. As soon as the BBC and ITV in Granada are getting share in the numbers, then you know, when Fincher or someone else does a contract with a streamer, they're going to be like, look, I know people get these numbers. I would like these numbers too. Right. So it's going to be a good leverage. Also, they might realize, I mean, I think some of this is just habit. It's like, we never had to do numbers before. So why would we do numbers now? And I think maybe once some of the numbers get more public and they realize that it's not such a big deal, they might get more flexible with the numbers. It's still a weird thing to be so locked up on, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that I think there's a perception of Netflix's dominance that everybody has it, everybody's watching, that there's all these shows, and there's this importance of going back to something I said a little earlier, the water the value of of water cooler, like something just dropped, like you know, the weekend that Netflix puts out its new season of stranger things there will be this energy to be like go see it and everybody talk about it it'll be buzzy for like a weekend there'll be memes and you'll feel left out if you don't watch it etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's sort of one of the things that drives that that's one of the only ways you cut through the noise we've talked about it before on this podcast of all the available things so i could see again why a streamer really doesn't want people to know that there are some very poorly watched programs because that momentum works in the opposite direction as well. On the other hand, it's sort of like, I mean, it's, it's quite a feat to have pulled off to be able, like, like you said, dissecting box office numbers. And even though it's a horrible system, dissecting Nielsen ratings was always just the whole way the industry turned. Nielsen ratings are a completely ridiculous methodology, but for so long, everything was built around that, those numbers, those audience shares, what was a hit and what wasn't, and what could keep going and sustain so many conclusions drawn. And the fact that the streamers 
are the massive source of content. And right now, like even over the last few weekends, like I think Disney released their new Pixar movie pretty much only on the streaming platform. Godzilla, I mean, just talking about box office, Godzilla and King Kong finally crossed 100 million. That's crazy. And everything is simultaneously released right now. So, you know, I don't know if that's going to change as pandemic stuff fades farther into the past, but there's certainly something crazy about the fact that the streamers are the main platform for content and the studios are creating that content. And so they have the, 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 the means of production, they have the platform you view it, and they're not letting people know how many people are watching it. So there's no real indicator as to, you know, we can't do the Monday morning quarterback of, oh, you know, they spent so much on John Carter of Mars, the series, and it completely tanked. Like nobody watched it. Like they don't, we don't get to, to, to spin that yarn and that narrative doesn't exist. They only get to tell us Stranger Things broke every single streaming record. And we're kind of like, oh, wow. Crazy! Everybody watches Stranger Things. You know, like, like you know what I mean? There's no, there's just they completely control the ecosystem of the lifespan of the show of the of the show or the movie. Number one watched movie means something in advertising speak, or always has, and they can announce that, but they don't have to really back it up. They don't have to be held accountable for the opposite being true. And it might be why they don't want to release in theaters as much because we can say, you know, latest Pixar movie, number one, like most watched thing over the weekend. It's like, okay, we have, we'll take your word for it, I guess. I don't know. So maybe that'll cease to mean as much to people. Maybe it already has, but it's a strange, I'm, I'm also glad that the BBC is kind of going to hold their feet to the fire personally. Because I think it would be good for the creatives and for the community to know what people are responding to or care about. Yeah, I don't think all data needs to be out everywhere all the time. But I certainly think this data is relevant to the people who make projects. And I think that, you know... They already, they're, they're, they're constantly toying with, you know, like you scan through Netflix and they're constantly being like popular near you, popular now. So they're right, dancing yeah, around. Like, they're I trying. looked at that. That's a funny one. Sometimes I see that popular near you and I just think about like what, when I buy stuff on Amazon, I'm like, what are the other weirdo, what are, what are like the, the people that my assumption about like the slice of life that lives near me? Like, like, are they only buying organic field greens or something like I, I'm always curious there's there's a little bit of curiosity you're like why are people watching this but then the truth is like I don't know how true that is you know like I don't know what they're serving me up like I don't I, our no film school founder Ryan Koo made a movie with Netflix early on in Netflix's original amateur thing and and amateur's name in the movie early on in Netflix's financing original features and he's often said to me he's like I Wish I will never know. I have no idea. I know when people are talking about it, like I have Google alerts, but I would love to know how many people are watching this movie that like, like it's like he has no clue, right? That's crazy. That's a weird position to be in. I know, especially if you've ever done anything on the internet, 
where you get so much data so quickly. I mean, one of the, you know, I've done a couple of YouTube videos where, you know, we've, we've gotten to the, into the millions of hits and you get like these wonderful breakdown graphs where it's like, oh, wow, everybody stops watching at this point. And then you just yes. see it like fall off a cliff and you're like, that's oh, I such wonder. A, that's such a great point. That's so, that's true about YouTube. I'm sorry to cut you off, but it makes me realize true about YouTube, even true about if you post like video on Facebook and because I work in the internet primarily. So with no film school, so we know everything about people reading it. Even on this podcast, we will, I will look through the data on interviews I've done with people and think, okay, how quickly do people tune out? Like, what's the, what's the point at which, you know, audience retention drops? Like, what are we talking about at this point or what guests, you know, and that can help us serve a better product. It's not even about anything nefarious or or not nefarious, but anything like financially motivated. It's just simply how do we create something that our audiences are more motivated to listen to or like or enjoy? Like this is real-time feedback. And what you're pointing out could be an amazing tool to creatives to know was my first act when everybody like the movie I wrote that was on streaming platforms and released digitally, et cetera, et cetera. I always had assumptions that like People didn't get past a certain point in Act One because it was our we- because unfortunately it was one of our weaker sections, and I always thought that was a real error. But I don't have data; I only have my beliefs plus colloquial. Like, like I read the tea leaves. I wish I had data. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Scene four is when because because then I would say, okay, I've learned this important lesson. I have the data to back it up, or. I am comfortable with the fact that I lost certain people here because the people who made it through this are going to stick through, like, which is also a legitimate, like, I don't think every artist is obligated to try and appeal to the widest swath of people. If you want to make something more niche, you can, but I still think it's fascinating to have the knowledge of when you lose them, right? Like if you're interested in a particular kind of body horror, having the data on when you get an audience drop because of a certain experience is useful. I mean, I tried to watch Manchester by the Sea. It was like, I love Kenneth Lonergan. The opening sequence of that movie is perfect. Like the screenwriting is amazing. Like it's like the acting is great. It's well-directed. It's beautifully shot. Like everything is firing. And then spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie from five years ago, his kids die. And like my, my kid is young and I got to the scene where his kid died, and I was like, nope, can't do it. Can't. <laughs> Just can't. And like no fault of... Anyone like it's a movie about someone whose kids dies. Like that's the that's the thing. If I don't know why, but I was like, today I can't watch a movie about someone whose kids. Die. I just can't. And like yeah. that's no, that's, that's I mean that that's good data for them to have, and also for them to know. Like I, I mean, this is not just me. Like I talked to Rennie Harlan on the podcast. We released it last week, and he told me a lesson he learned about test audiences when he made Cliffhanger, and I was amazed because it was like, you don't usually hear that many positive, like we did tests and and I learned this, but he was like, it was a really valuable filmmaking lesson that I've learned and carried with me since. And I think that that's the kind of thing you could get if you had the data. I think it's really cool we stumbled upon this, that that you mentioned it, because knowing that like, you're gonna, those are, these are creative lessons you could learn. Like if you're trying to grow as a filmmaker, you might say like, wow, if I do that kind of thing, I alienate a certain number of people. Okay, I'm okay with that. Or say, I have to change how I do it. Or, 
you know, if interest level drops around here, what is it about this section that, that is there a particular way that like suddenly female audiences in mass stop watching my movie? Like that would be, is there an episode of my series where it seems like I lost a certain age group? Like that's interesting to know. You don't have to change to try to please all of the people all the time. That's a great point. But testing is so valuable to the lifespan of the artist. But the flip side of that is uh, Manchester by the Sea, very early in Amazon's originals thing. Amazon is a very data-driven company. I guarantee you, even if Kenneth Lonergan has never seen the chart, I guarantee you someone at Amazon has seen a chart at how many people drop out when the kids pass away. Because I can't be the only one who has who is the parent of a young child and and noped at that moment because they were just not able to, you know, you think about your own kid dying and you're like, I can't. And what you're saying is the danger of the of the studio saying when they read stuff like, oh, we have all this data to back up that if a kid dies in the first act, we will lose X number of revenue. So no, we're not producing that movie. Yeah, like I what I don't want to see is an algorithm. Like you, Kenneth Lonergan having to send a script to Amazon Originals and an algorithm reading it and an algorithm suggesting, oh, you're going to lose a certain amount of your audience 30 minutes in because a child dies. Have you thought about maybe the child survives and gives the dad a hug? <laughs> like, you know. I mean, that's, I hate to say it, but that's going to happen no matter what. It probably what. is already like, happening. Right. And that's going to happen even without the data. But what, but so it's kind of like the, some of these things are, are just like, someone's going to say to him, I guarantee that anytime something like that happened, you sit in a, for every great movie moment, there's, there's a pitch, there's a pitch meeting or a meeting with an executive somewhere, not, not to knock executives, but they're going to be the butt of the joke here where they're going to make the worst imaginable suggestion. And you're going to have like this blank stare and you're going to think, wow, you just don't even understand the point of what this story was, or you just want it to be something completely different, or you don't. Like, like it's just, and you're going to have to find a way to break through your own glazed over look and smile and be like, well, yeah, that's really interesting. Like, it happens all the time. And like that, I think that you're, the scary thing is them having the data to say like, look, it's not just my dumb opinion. We can't make X amount of dollars, so we can't produce it. But I still feel like that is kind of, par out there no matter what that's gonna you're gonna fight against that you could hey maybe there's a way that if the artists also had the data they could say yeah but look manchester by the sea lost this many viewers they just noped at the moment at that happened but it still retained this amount of many viewers and it still did really well so we know we can make a successful movie where this happens like i could see it going both ways but i i, I hear your point yeah i mean i and there's a part of me that's like, I don't want Kenneth Lonergan to have any of this data. I want him to just write whatever goddamn movie he feels like writing. Because I like his, you know, like, but yeah, producers that's also are different than writers. I mean, yeah, it's- I, I think you can learn a lot from data. You could take the wrong lessons and it's probably valuable this is something that comes up in, in athletics all the time because these guys have access to so much more data and video and the availability of video. Like, think about it. 30 years ago, you wouldn't really be able to watch yourself as easily as now. You can watch, rewatch, dissect. And there's this debate, like, does it make you better? Does it make you worse? Et cetera, et cetera. I think it's all about how you use the tools available to you. And I could certainly, like I said, with test screenings, I could some test screenings 
could really negatively impact filmmakers and their confidence in their own voice and their own material. And sometimes you have to say about audiences, fuck them, like they're wrong. I'm doing what I'm doing. Sometimes you have to say, you know what? I think there's something I could learn here. And what kind of person you are and artist you're going to become and how you grow is dictated by those little choices. And I think it's interesting. And I think I I think that back to the original point, I think the data should be available to those who seek it out. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to wrap with this, which is I think that data should I agree that data should be available to those who seek it out. But I also think there should be a like testing and certification requirement before you're allowed to access the data that you're actually capable of understanding data points. I mean, you know, there's that, <laughs> there's that famous yes. example that goes around of uh, that they use in business school all the time of like, you're a race car mechanic and uh, your head gaskets keep blowing at these temperatures, like, and someone wants to race again at this temperature and should you do it? And they show you a chart and the real answer, which apparently no one ever gets right, is you're supposed to ask, can I see the temperatures on the days when the head gasket didn't blow? And then you see that chart, which is actually, it's all about the Challenger explosion. And the reason why they made the decision to fly on the Challenger explosion was they were only looking at other days where they'd had problems, They, which were all colder, which were spread across a like range of coldness. They didn't look at on the fact that like on warmer days, they never had problems. So obviously it's too cold. They should wait for a warmer day to launch. And like, it's one of those classic data science things where it's like charts are only as useful as your ability to accurately engage in them. Right. Yes. So like there needs to be some sophistication in how we engage with this data that I think should be encouraged in those using it. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, here is some data that we all understand, which is the next story we're going to talk about today, which is a, <laughs> an internet controversy spreads from, I mean, I mostly know this, I mean, it's been a long time, but I mostly know this as a joke about internet dating, but James Gunn has brought it over to casting, which is James Gunn tweeted something. He has tweeted some controversial things in the past. I think he got fired from a movie from tweets and then got quietly rehired on the same movie, ignoring the tweets. Regardless, he tweeted, and I think he was maybe just trying to start controversy, which fine. That's what Twitter is for. Basically tweeted, I wish men would tell the truth about their height when casting. Casting a show is balancing lots of things. And like 50% of the time, male actors exaggerate how tall they are on their resumes. And people had a lot of thoughts about this. Some people were like, some people who were like, 
you know, Anson Mount was like, uh, it shouldn't fucking matter. And sort of had like a feminist read that it's, uh, you know, it's about male dominance and masculinity and stuff. I Googled Anson Mount. He is, according to the internet, 6'1". We do not know what that actually means. Because yeah, you know, I, that could be a I, lie. I'll tell a little backstory here. I saw this. I saw James Gunn tweet this. And I thought, huh, it's kind of kind of aggressive, like interesting. I liked, I love James Gunn. I don't just like him. I love him. I don't love all the movies, but I love his approach, his attitude, his style. I think if you're going to be like a guy who he kind of came up with some kind of DIY horror stuff, he I loved the first Guardians of the Game. Anyway, big fan. I was follow, I follow him on Twitter. He made this comment and I thought this is like an, an interestingly aggressive, like kind of poking the bear. Like, I mean, yes, actors lie about their height. People lie about their height. Athlete, everybody lies about these numbers. But there's something funny about it with actors. If you're in around the industry where like you'll see, you know, you'll see like Mel Gibson in real life and he looks like he's like five foot four. You're like, oh my God, they're a lot smaller. <laughs> That's pretty much true across the boards. And even the ones you think that are tall, like end up being like quite a bit smaller. Than, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, not that tall. I mean, I'm a tall guy. I think you're a tall guy too, Charles, right? We're brown. Yes. But like, like I like you see Arnold Schwarzenegger in real life and you're like, yeah, he was really big once, like massive, but he's not like a giant. And actors in general, and they have big heads, and there's certain things that like photograph well. Anyway, there's a lot of standing on Apple boxes, right? To even things out. And like there's a lot of leading women or women in film who are taller than men. So it's a whole thing, right? And it's a joke that actors lie. So whatever you see listed, like knock like two to three inches off that. And a lot of them end up being six feet, which is probably an exaggeration. Anyway, it was funny to me that he tweeted it because it felt like a poking the bear with with movie stars and male actors who tend to lie about their height. And it could be some insecurity or whatever. And <laughs> Anson Mount's response. So, that, so when I saw that response, I was like, whoa, this guy is mad. Cause he, cause he didn't just start there. He's like, why don't you share your measurements, James, or something like that, right? There was something in there. And so I said to our writing team at No Film School, I was like, I think we should write about this because this is kind of something. And it, it, it does uncover a little bit about the way that casting and, and height, like all this stuff. It's like a little bit of a peeling back of the curtain that is definitely a factor. It's definitely a thing. And people really responded to that article. So that's kind of one reason why I was, I was sort of surprised at how interested people were in the topic. Uh, at the same time, I did think it was interesting. But yeah, think about it from, a, from the way you shoot a scene. Think about eye lines. Think about how you want to depict, like how you choose to depict a person in a frame, if they're tall, if they're short, if you're shooting above, if, wh- where, what's in frame and what's out of frame and how hot, like think about matching heights, Think about over the shoulders, right? Like, so when you start to dissect the grammar of a scene as you shoot it, of course the star's height becomes important. So it makes sense that lying could be an issue because you're like, right, okay, we don't really know until we get them in the room testing with the opposite character. Right, Charles? I agree. I mean, there's like, you know, there's a famous, I think it's Filmo Sigmund got hired to shoot a movie that, that starred Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter's like five, four and Sigourney Weaver's like six, two. And when he got <laughs> hired, he was like, this is wonderful. Just schedule more time. I just need more time. Like if you're going to give me two leads that are that far apart, it just slows me down. And apparently they, they gave him more time and it worked out great. 
my take on this is closer to the, I mean, I don't think we need to curse on the internet, but it's closer to the instant mount take to, than the James Gunn take, which is, I think that there are, oh, the anecdote I was going to tell, it's been a long time, you know, I've been married a long time, but like, you know, when I was single, I went on a couple of internet dates and I list my actual height, 6'1". And I remember a woman I was on a date with being like, wow, you're so tall. And I was like, but I said I was 6'1". And she's like, yeah, but I always assume every guy I go on a date with is lying by two or three inches. Um, <laughs> and and then she said, you will almost never see anyone on a dating site list less than six feet. She said, you, you know, like you just never saw it. Like every, like she was like, oh, dudes who are five nine say they're six feet. And so I see six one, and I'm assuming you're going to be more like five nine, five ten. And I was like, oh, I mean, I never, you know, I wasn't, it never occurred to me to lie about my height, but like, I think it's indicative that there's a large cultural pressure on men to be taller. I think I see memes about this all the time about like, like the way different heights are responded to. So I understand that there is this like pressure for height. I didn't know Lee Pace was six, five, uh, so tall, but I think that what's interesting to me about this and Anson Mount's take is look, obviously Tom Cruise keeps getting cast, even though he is short because he is good at action movies and stuff. And it shouldn't actually, frankly, I th- I agree with Anson Mount that it shouldn't be on headshots anymore because if you like a person, like bring them in, meet with them. If you like them enough, you will figure out how to make it work in the scene. And if they're right for the part, you make it work. And I think height is one of those pre-existing notions we always have of like, like, you know, in the internet dating world, how many women end up on those dates with those five, eight guys and then end up falling in love. And it doesn't matter that he's not six feet tall. I mean, probably yes. some, well, and like, I, I'm and probably gonna, some yeah. feel legitimately deceived that the person lied about their height, but like, it's a and, complicated thing casting. And I think being open to the possibility that your narrow idea of what you're looking for is not actually what's right for the part. You should always be more open in casting if possible. Yes, I agree with that. And I'll add, there are some other things. There's some subtext here. There's some. There's a lot of subtext brewing. Uh, Anson Mount's response included that he said, present us with your measurements when we walk through the door, we'll likely be underwhelmed. And I, <laughs> I think that's the part that clear, seemed to me like it touched a nerve. And here's what I mean. When you're an actor or an, act, an actor in this industry, there is this meat market thing where how you look, how you're measured, how you, you get judged so many ways. And there's and there's prejudging, there's current judging, and there's this there's this panel of James Gunn. If I mean, if you're in a final stage, he's not going to sit there behind the table in the early days. But the casting people are just looking and making a lot of quick assessments about your looks. Do you look good enough? Are you ugly? Like harsh, painful stuff. It's crushing. And actors, people who pursue this, they need to develop a thick skin real fast, or else they're going to be miserable. And or just, you know, it's not the right line of work. It's tough. And it's not fair, not just because it's dehumanizing, but also because it actually doesn't, as he says, it shouldn't and doesn't matter. Why? Because like, you know, does it matter that uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro are shorter? No. Are they still imposing on screen if they need to be? Yes. Like, does, is there a way to shoot anyone at any? I mean, yes, of course. And and it's it, it doesn't mean you're not going to be good in a certain role. It doesn't mean any of that. But it is also a reality of this industry that they're going to say, we're looking for a tall guy. 
And that's going to be one of the ways they try to narrow the field because the field is practically imminent, infinite. So like it or not, actors are judged by these things and it's painful and awful. And I think that what was coming out there with Anson Mount a little bit was like the, I am so fed up with that part of this. Like, I hate it. It's not fair. It's not reasonable. And it's, and it's stupid. And I think he's right in a lot of ways. But I also think it's, it's the business he's in. Like, that's what being an actor is. Like, you're going to get judged that way. And it's, it's not that he's wrong to speak out against it. It's just that it is so, it seems like there's probably so many years of walking into rooms. And, and in his case, oftentimes they're probably like, oh, he's way too big, right? Because <laughs> it's always something is not good enough. Like, there's going to be like, well, the woman we cast is smaller and he's massive. Like, so he's going to look ridiculous. And so that's what he has to deal with. Everybody's going to have to deal with something. And I think where he's coming from is like, you, James Gunn, your director, you never have to be held to that. Like, they're going to judge you and hurt you in other ways, and you're going to need a thick skin. But you're never going to be judged by your size, your physical appearance. Like, they're not going to make decisions about your career and your livelihood based on that. Right. So I think that's kind of where this becomes like this. There is this brewing subtext and hostility between those who sit behind that casting table and those who have to stand up there and and survive that. Did you remember, Charles, not that long ago, a video was released that was a it went viral. It was an actor who was doing an audition and we might have even talked about it on the podcast. I don't know. But there was and there was some directors and they were not on mute and they were talking about how the guy lived. They were like, oh, look at these people. Look at how this guy's like crappy apartment or whatever. And the guy who was the actor was like, you're not on mute. But yeah, I know my apartment kind of sucks. And then the person who's casting was like, it was just really awkward and horrible. But it was a window into the harshness of that. Right. And I, I think that's what's really beneath the surface here. Yeah. I mean, it is a. Yeah. My two casting stories are always. I've auditioned three times. I booked all three jobs, so I'm never auditioning again because I'm not ruining my streak. But I remember one time I was auditioning. You know, every time I ever auditioned for anything, it was I had a friend who was casting something who was like, would you just come in and audition for this? And then I ended up booking it and I'm staying out of it. But I remember driving across town to go into Discovery Networks to cast when I hosted a Discovery show. And like insecurities I hadn't thought about since I was like 12 started coming out of like, and I was like, I had a perfectly fine morning. I had a fun night the night, but like, I was like in a fine mood when I left my apartment. And by the time I'd driven half an hour across LA or an hour, let's be real, LA is big. By the time I got to Discovery Networks, like I was an adolescent child of like gibbering insecurities. And I remember uh, dinner that night with an actress friend of mine and I told her the story and she was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's every audition. And I do that five times a week. And I was like, oh, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, it's a it's a brutal, brutal grind. And yeah. the wherewithal to stick to that and find a way to feel good about yourself and confident despite no fault of your own. You could be too good looking and it could be like, you know, that could be the knock. I mean, that's it, it sounds crazy, but there are people who have to deal with that. Like that they're like, uh, too pretty. That guy's too pretty. He's just like, and then that guy starts to get a complex because he's like, I'm not manly enough or I'm not this. Like I've known these people. Like I, I, it's, it's crazy how much you can. And, and you, you, yeah, it's just, 
it's a, I've done so many casting sessions. Like I've been casting so many times and I've done them. I've auditioned for things before too. And it is unpleasant all the way around. It is just an unpleasant dynamic. And I have a lot of respect for the people who can handle it over and over again. And I also, uh, on both sides. And I also think like so many things, the most important thing is to just don't be a dick, be nice to people, understand what they're going through on the other side of this and try to be a human being. And I think that can save a lot of suffering in the process that can be so, that can be so much misery, but it's, it's rough. (laughs) It is rough. So filmmakers, I feel like this is a good like thing. James Gunn may have been coming from a completely innocent place. I have no idea what was motivating him, but for the young filmmakers or people out there, like I, I, when I was 22, 23 and I was casting stuff and like my videos or whatever, if you can try to be, try to remember these are people and try to treat them with respect and try to understand what they're coming with that week of going on auditions. It's just good karma, right? I also think like exactly when you're talking about James Gunn, I mean, I don't think James Gunn meant to be hurtful. I think yeah. he was literally he saying a nerve. like, yeah. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> just- as a filmmaker, what I want is super tall dudes. <laughs> I want super tall dudes. So if you guys could all, you know, and like he was very upfront about, he was like, I want giants, which like fair. And like, you know, in casting, when you, when you have a part like Fezzik in the princess bride, (laughs) like you, you want someone like Andre the giant to play Fezzik, right? Like that's the, the deal with the casting of that part. Right. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I've put up a casting notice for like, I cast a project where we specifically needed an African-American female in lead. And the number of like, not just white women, but like white dudes who submitted. (laughs) And I'm not talking- I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so funny when you get that stuff and you're just like, wow. uh, Do you just submit on every single thing? (laughs) So like, I get it where you're like, where you're James Gunn and you're like, I would like to make my casting process easier. Totally understand. On the flip side, I think that kind of like thoughtlessness is actually a bigger problem where it's like, first off, James Gunn, you're, you're directing hundred million dollar movies. So you have a whole casting army that's whittling everybody down before. Yeah, He's only you... seeing that top tier. That's already really. Yeah. Yeah. So like your casting assistant can see a bunch of people who are two or three inches too short, but might be good enough that you ignore the fact that they're three inches shorter than you want them to be because they're right enough for the part that it doesn't matter. And in general, it just comes off as another one of those ways in which like we all need to be like specifically thinking about where are the places where we can be open, more open in casting. You know what I mean? Like where are the places where we don't have to be so narrow in who we look at and be more open to other possibilities? Because yeah, it's a... Yeah, One of the best casting decisions I ever made, the best casting decision I ever made, the only one that mattered, was a script that was about two Caucasian males and deciding, you know what, this guy, this Asian American is just a much better, much better casting and I don't care and he's, he's amazing and rewriting it to make that work. Probably the, one of the best decisions I've ever made for a number of reasons. So sometimes the completely wrong person is there. Do you remember, Charles, at USC, there was an actual book with headshots? Oh, yeah. Do you remember, yeah, Do you like remember that guy that? who was in his 80s who had like four different headshots, like minor, 
and <laughs> right. doctor. And he was really nice. A friend of mine cast him in something and I stopped by set that day. He was very nice. He was just enjoying his retirement, doing bit parts in student films. Yeah, there were a lot of those kinds of guys in that in those books. They were kind of like, it was almost like central casting for the U, for the USC student film studio, like the way you would imagine it was at like Warner Brothers in the forties or whatever. There was just like a pool, you know, of people who were like, "Yeah, I want to, I want to act." as it's fr- it's fun, you know. It's a whole different thing. But this conversation reminds me of that book, like flipping through it, and being like, "Oh yeah, that guy. I've seen him in those shorts," you know. Yeah. Yep. No, I totally, I feel you. I, I, uh, I remember that experience of like looking through a book of people, but you, yeah. I mean, I think we've all had that great experience of being like, oh, I had this in mind for the part, but then I read these people and clearly the best person is why, and they're the best person and they get the part and they understand it. And it doesn't have to be the thing I thought it was going to be. And Mm -hmm. as much as I made fun of those white dudes for submitting for the African-American female part, I just could ignore their headshots. Like they wasted less than a second of my time each. I could just scroll right past them. So like, you know, they probably shouldn't have submitted, but like it was easy to tune out. (laughs) And like, if someone is, you know, that, that specific part would have made no sense. Yeah. It's funny, but it, you never know, right? You never know. Maybe someone will look at it and be like, oh my God, it should be a white guy. (laughs) <laughs> or like, I don't know, maybe. I mean, not that that, that's not really what we want to do right now anyway, because we're trying to type. Well, I was going to say like the hiring <laughs> like, committee of every Fortune 500 looking for a new CEO, <laughs> you know, will a bunch of diverse candidates. And then they're like, wait a minute, guys, what if it was a white guy? Let's think outside the box here. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe it'll be a bald white guy. <laughs> I can say that I'm bald. I can, I can mock. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Moving on to tech news, tech news. So uh, relatively quiet news in tech this week. So we just wanted to bring up the fact that next week is going to be Black Magic Capture to Post Week at No Film School. So we're going to have a bunch of articles on Black Magic stuff, how they integrate camera stuff and post stuff. We did a special shoot with the Black Magic Pocket 6K Pro, which is designed to sort of address one of the most common setups, one of the most challenging repeat setups that came to me as a freelance DP. And how nice it is that new technology makes that way easier than it used to be. And uh, we've got all that coming, but also that means we're talking to a bunch of people, DPs who've been shooting black magic, colorists and whatnot. So if you have questions about any of that stuff, you should get in touch with us because we're running all those articles next week. And uh, that is what's coming down the pipe in tech news. And then there's a couple other announcements from other vendors that are going to be coming up. Yeah, there's going to be a ton of black magic content, but it's also going to dive. There's going to be some educational stuff just about the tech. And there's going to be some interviews with people who've been, you know, working with Blackmagic and other camera companies to design the kinds of digital cameras that are on the marketplace now. So you'll learn more about the history of that, but also where it's going next. And there's going to be a contest. So there's going to be a giveaway prize. We've had some success doing these. People get really expensive cameras 
entering these contests, making shorts. So keep an eye out for all of that. Yep. All right. And then our last thing this week is a response to an earlier one. I told a story about how my first job was reading scripts of creative artists and how most were very bad. And Kirk Ballard <laughs> emailed to ask, what was so bad about those scripts you read at Creative Artists? I'm a storyteller trying to hone my skills. Was it bad structure, bad plot, bad character, bad dialogue? What made them very, very bad? And I, I'm going to make this a broader conversation of what makes a script immediately, obviously bad when you are reading it as a reader, which is different than when you are reading your scripts that your friend sends you. Like your friend sends it's you a also- script. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's a great question. And it's yeah. the kind of thing that makes us reflect more on the things we say because we think like, yeah, that's a really valuable point. Anyway, thank you, Kirk. Yeah, great question. So when I, when I was a script reader, I was primarily reading for agencies and I was under the impression, like part of, it, at least a creative artists, one of the things, that, like you, most places you just wrote what was called coverage, which is like a two-page summary and a one-paragraph summary and a logline. But creative artists also had you do like a character breakdown for each of the major characters and whether or not they would be like engaging to play. I got the impression, and maybe this was wrong, this was 20 years ago, I got the impression that I was largely reading, not looking for new writing talent, although CA reps a lot of writers, but primarily looking for scripts to attach actors to was the impression I got from like the people who supervised me. Not, you know, I mean, I'm sure that if I'd said something was perfectly written, they would also want to meet the writer, but I very much got the sense that it was stuff that was submitted for people to be cast on. And so I was really focused on character, character, character. And that to this day remains sort of the way in which I evaluate a script. Like the structure stuff isn't easy. I was about to say structure is easy. The structure stuff isn't easy, but like generally by the time you're making it past gatekeepers, generally by the time your script's even making it to CAA's pile, although there was some stuff there that was incoherent gibberish, but like most of the stuff at least like understood the story structure and understood like, you know, first act and introducing characters and, and setting up a premise and inciting incident for the most part, like, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30, I was like, oh, it's signing incident. Okay, here's where we're going. And then we're going through second act and then like second act climax and breaking it. Like that stuff was mostly there. But I still recommended it. I, I still recommend it against the vast majority of projects because the characters were just not interesting or memorable in any way. And I knew that CA was looking for scripts to attach their actors to. But I also knew that like that was... I mean, in the end, it is really character that most of the audience, in my opinion, responds to. Like when everybody got really mad at the end of Game of Thrones, they're not mad about the fact that the cinematography totally changed. The first seven seasons was like gritty and desaturated and urban. And like the final episode looked like it could have been painted on the side of a van. I loved the cinematography change. It was super fun to watch <laughs> the game bowl, like in saturated colors with like, flint, you know, but like it didn't look like the rest of the show. I've never heard anyone complain about that. It's not a thing to complain about it. It's fine, but it's like, aesthetically, it's not unified. It's okay. All everyone is annoyed about is Daenerys wouldn't have changed that quickly or they wouldn't have got, you know, it's all character stuff. It's all character transitions happening too quickly or or characters not behaving believably. And like the number one thing when I talk to people about movies that they are like frustrated by is they're talking about the characters as if they're people. And they're frustrated when they see characters behaving in ways that don't feel logical to them, especially in the final act. You can get away with a logical character behavior in the first act because it creates mystery. You're like, 
why did that person leave that broccoli behind? Are they going to come back and get it later? Is it a setup? And then on page 50, when they come back and they get the broccoli back and it turns out the broccoli had worms in it and it was deliberately there to infect the house with worms, it's okay. But you can't get away with, the same way you can't get away with coincidence in the last act, all coincidences and character inconsistencies really need to be in the first act. Your last act, the characters need to behave in the way you've set them up to behave. And so that was the thing. I mean, the scripts I remember that got made that I read when I was there, I read Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I hadn't heard of Charlie Kaufman yet. This was before Charlie Kaufman was like a known person. And I read Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And I was like, this is great. This script's great. And I remember talking to my boss who was like, yeah, that's Charlie fucking Kaufman. Of course that's great. Like, <laughs> you know, and uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, solid movie, good performance by um, the leading man. And like, yeah, character. The character made sense and was interesting and engaging. You wanted to spend those 90 minutes with the character, and the plot was built around that. There was another one that actually got made but bombed called Tears of the Sun with Monica Bellucci and Bruce Willis. And I remember reading it thinking this is very well written, but the characters and the characters are very well designed to cast. Like you can see that they're going to get movie stars for this. I can see why movie stars will say yes to this. But I thought it was a little racist. It's about like, a soldier and a doctor in Africa saving people. And it just felt like a little racist and reductive. And I was like, I don't think this is going to, and I actually said like pass on it and it got made anyway. And mm. uh, I was right. It bombed. They should have listened to me, the lowly script reader <laughs> who was like, this is a little, this is a little not good as it could be, but the characters were good. I never saw the movie. So maybe the, it didn't resemble the script much, but character just like who are, who are the people your story is about? And why do I care about them and engage with them? Structure is important, right? But like the scripts I think about that still didn't get made. I still remember one called Food and Bev where like the structure didn't quite work. But I was like, interested. it was about Food and Bev, a character named Bev who had anorexia in a like food treatment facility. And like, I still remember Bev like 20 years later. Structure wasn't quite right. <laughs> Rewrites could have gotten the structure there. Character, character, character. Like, that's the thing that's going to get script readers to be like, yes, you should send this to the actors. And if you can attach people, you should make this because the characters are engaging and work. And like, that's, that's my take on it, which is different than the notes you give your friends, I think. I think it's great advice, of course. My response is a little different. And it's not a, it's not a disagreement that that matters because I think you're right that and that's something you hear a lot. I've heard more executives and people talk about character and the and the importance of the characters than anything else. I think part of it is casting. I think part like you can get one of the most one of the key ways to getting a movie made. I don't want to say the most common, but like one of the avenues is attaching talent. And so, how do you attach talent? You write a character they want to play. So, one thing I always used to try to do, and I think is smart even if it didn't always work out, sometimes it got me a certain distance downfield, even if we didn't score the touchdown, so to speak, would be thinking about an actor you could probably get to and what they might be interested in playing or what might be interesting for them. And that can sort of get you going sometimes about a character. Or maybe you think about an actor you can get who's interested in working with you, and then you start the process there and think about what would be interesting for that person to play. So you do a little bit of a casting. Going back to casting, you do some like pre-casting in your mind. And then sometimes that doesn't work out, but then you know it ends up going somewhere else. I've had that happen to me, and it still works out well. But my thing is this, and I think that this is really easy to say, 
really hard to do. But I think the most important thing these days is that you never be boring. And I know that sounds kind of reductive and crazy, maybe, like obviously, but if you want people to fit, people are so distracted right now. They are so unlikely to finish things. We all are unlikely to finish tasks. We've gone from emailing to text, like everything's getting shorter and shorter. And you don't need me to tell you that. You know that. If you want someone to read it or watch it, what I've learned and experienced is you cannot count on them to stay interested. You, you ha- now you can't manufacture interest without a lot of talent because you can't just be like, oh my God, there's another bomb about to go off. But oh wait, <laughs> but like you have to do it in a way that's intelligent and crafty. But you can't let people start to drift. You have to find a way. And here's the, you brought up Game of Thrones. It was a brilliant analogy in the context of character and absolutely true. That is what people complain about. They don't complain about anything beyond like this character wouldn't do that. Sometimes they were complaining about the time it took to get places, but that's really minimal compared to like, I don't buy that XYZ. I've come to know this character. What I think is another great lesson you can take from Game of Thrones is the structure from the beginning. If you took any of the storylines, like if you just took Jon Snow's storyline for the first three or four seasons and you stitched it together and watched it, it would start to bore you to tears because not much happened. But they kept cutting it with these other things. So they kept leaving you somewhere. So even if you didn't love what was happening with Jon Snow, you'd jump into another place and there'd be another thing happening and it would tease interest forward. And I think what they revealed... and a series is completely different than you know writing a feature. But if you can do things that keep pushing the attention forward to somewhere else, get them into a new place, make them think about a new thing. Like we can't necessarily follow. I mean, we can. I shouldn't say we can't. It it's all depends. But if you're worried about people finishing your script or thinking your script is good, you really have to keep them every page. You have to find a way to keep them. And you have to, and I, and I would also recommend if it's hard to know if that's happening or if it's working, if you get bored writing it, there's a good chance people are going to get bored reading it. So take a step back and think, (laughs) you got to take a step back and think like, why is this a chore? Am I bored? Like, am I disinterested in this? That's a painful thing to realize. I've had it happen to me many times. And I've pushed through it foolishly and thought, no, it's just because I've been working on it for so long. Might not be. It might be because you are slogging and your the passion isn't there. Even with columnists and writers for No Film School, I always tell people, like, I want them to write the things that they are interested in writing because you can tell when a writer is not enjoying themselves when you're reading it. You can tell. It's not fun to read it. Like it's it's a there's a real communication happening between writer and reader that I think like if you're excited and enjoying it every step of the way it's it's contagious and you can feel it and it, and it keeps you going forward. So I think that if you're I like reading scripts, but my my quick story about being a reader was that one of the scripts I read early on for coverage was an adapt feature script for Dungeons and Dragons, which actually did get made. And it was a long time ago, probably a little bit ahead of its time. I think Marlon Wayans ended up being in it. But I remember reading that script and thinking, oh my God, this is bad. Like, this is painful. 
And it, you know, it got made and I don't think it did very well. I never saw it, but I just remember thinking this is so bad and it still got made. So only reason I say that is because sometimes it just doesn't matter. Like bad scripts are going to get made into movies and good scripts are not. So if you're thinking about it that way, like you could write a great script that readers love that they hand up to people and say you're great. And for whatever reason, you know, it won't happen. doesn't mean you and- didn't do a good job. You also might write a great script that gets turned into a bad movie. I can think of three or four movies (laughs) where the script is amazing, where I can't believe how good the script is. And like, for whatever reason, the magic didn't happen in the execution. I have a list where I'm like, Ooh, if I'm ever like powerful enough, these are the movies I'd like to remake. Almost all of them bombed, which means it would be hard to pitch a remake, but it's like, Oh, that script was so good. I wish it had been made better. I think George, I I feel like some, probably a lot of people have said a version of this, but I've, heard a version attributed to George Clooney where he said, you can make a bad movie out of a good script, but you can't make a good movie out of a bad script. Yes. And I think that's a truism. Like you can definitely fuck it up. Not any one person fucking like, it's just like things go wrong so many different ways that that are beyond anyone's control at so many different inflection points, but you can definitely not like fix what wasn't ever really there. If there was nothing there, I think. I will, I will also, I, I, will, I will end with this, which is to say that George is right. People don't finish reading your script all the time. Like you're, the script reader will read it because they're getting paid specifically to read it. And they have to write a summary of everything that happens. But, you know, executives on average, what is it? The Sunday read, they're usually, it used to be, you could guarantee they were reading like five or six scripts every weekend was like part of like, you know, the weekend read. There's even an app called Weekend Read that's about reading PDFs more easily. And like, you know, in reality, the person I know who sold the most scripts is very upfront where he's like, in my opinion, I only expect an executive to read the first 25 and the last 10. And I'll be honest, I learned the first 25 and last 10 trick really early. And I would go back and read the whole script. But when I was writing coverage, I would read the first 25 and the last 10. And it tells you so much about the script when you read it like that, because you're like, what are you setting up? And then how are you paying it off? And the good scripts you're pleasantly surprised by the ending where you're like, oh, that makes sense. You set that up, but I didn't see it coming. The good scripts, you were excited to go back and see how they got from 25 to 100. The bad scripts, you were like, oh, okay, I know exactly what you're going to do from 25 to 100, but I'm going to read it anyway because that is what I'm getting paid to do. And I bet that there are a lot of executives who just read 25 and then the last 10. And if they are not excited about the the first 25 and the last 10, don't even bother to read the middle. I'm going to guess. That's my, I'm, I'm guessing. That's, that's great advice. Like, yeah, if you're, if you want to make sure, like, it's so funny to think you could do this amazing work in the beginning. You could pay it off really well. You could get your second act, which is the hardest part to write. You could get it all down. And if your last 10 pages just aren't like on point, no one will even know. Isn't that crazy? Like no one will even know how good you did. Like maybe you end things a little early and you have a little bit of a, like Christopher Nolan isn't subjected to this kind of rule. Like I would say most of the last 10 pages of his movies are always kind of a little weird. Like he gets it, like maybe the end happens like 20 pages before the end. But like, if you don't quite stick the landing in those last 10 pages, then no one's going to know about what you did in the middle. I think that's a really good reminder. Like, make sure you hit those notes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. All right. That has been this week on the No Fun Book Podcast. Kirk, thank you for the great question. You can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at Charles Hain or on my website at charleshain.com. Go to Amazon Prime. You can watch my feature film, Angel's Perch, or my series, Salty Pirate. Give them five stars if you like them or if you hate them because it helps the algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. Read about these stories and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Like us on Instagram. Leave a comment, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Check out all of our podcasts from the past. Tons of great interviews. Be sure to check out Black Magic Week next week. And yeah, keep asking these amazing questions. The questions help us know what what you want to know, what we should talk about. Great creates great conversation on this podcast. I really appreciate it. So let us know. Ask us questions. Mm-hmm.